0: Do you have someone who is fallen in your life? Are you dealing with someone who doesn't have the right relationship with God? Is there someone in your life who doesn't pray as they once did? Is there someone who doubts the word of God? When you tell them things of scripture, when you tell them what God says, they say, well, how come it's not happening to me? They doubt the very essence of what God says. Do you have the fallen in your life? I want you to know that God calls us to rebuild the fallen. If you're looking at somebody like that, if you're in a situation like that, it is your duty and your responsibility to rebuild the fallen, to bring them back to the place that they're supposed to be. And I've come to tell you today how to rebuild the fallen. That is the theme that I've chosen today. And once again, I want to welcome you to another installation of The Rebuild. And we are in a series, or we're in this series, and we're looking at installation number seven of The Rebuild. And I'm tying our theme specifically today, to rebuild the fallen, on Ezra chapter nine, and I'm picking it up in verse number one, all the way to verse number five. So if you have your Bibles, you know what you need to do. Turn to Ezra. Chapter number nine and this morning God has inspired me to preach from this particular chapter as we consider rebuild the fallen. The Bible says in verse number one it says after these things had been done after these things had been done the officials approached me and said the people of Israel. And the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Check that. Check that situation out. Now look at verse number two. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons. There's nothing wrong with marriage. But notice what happens in, this, in these marriages. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Somehow their relationships have impacted their faith. To the point that the holy people are no longer holy people. They are contaminated. And in this faithlessness, The hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. Mm, mm, mm. And as soon as I heard this, that's Ezra now. And as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening. Until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Rebuild the fallen. Rebuild the fallen. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what's happening right here. In Jesus' mighty name, I humbly pray. Amen. We've swam through Ezra chapter 1 to 6. And basically in our swimming through these chapters, we have understood two things, basically. The people come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. We know that. They leave a place of comfort, to a place of discomfort, because God has called them. We, we know that. We, we, we also know that the people rebuild the altar. They rebuild the foundation. And they rebuild in adversity. We know these particular concepts. And up to chapter number six in the book of Ezra, We come to the place that in the sixth year of Darius the king, the temple was completed. So successfully the people came back from Babylon to a place of discomfort and they rebuilt the house of the Lord. The mission was complete. But then the book of Ezra does not end in chapter six, it ends in chapter 10. So what's happening in these three chapters or four chapters, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter 9 and chapter 10, the story should end in chapter 6. But in fact, the story does not not end in chapter 6. The story continues until chapter number 10. You see, the first six chapters that we've been swimming in, they are a historical research that Ezra does. Because the first six chapters do not involve Ezra. Because they happened at a time in which Ezra was not even in Jerusalem. He was still in Babylon. And I want to imagine that he was still a young fella. But in chapter number 7 to chapter number 10, Ezra inserts himself in the story. And what you begin to see is that Ezra is really a memoir, it's a personal rendition of the times. He tells the story from his own perspective and specifically. In chapters number seven to chapter number 10, we get to know the man behind the book. It's as if Ezra says, look, I've been giving you a historical research in chapter one and chapter six, up to chapter six, but now allow me to give you a personal encounter of what I did in the rebuild. And I want you to understand exactly how I impacted my nation with my life. And somebody needs to hear me today that your life can make a difference. Your story can make a difference. Your story can touch somebody's life. Do not consider your story useless. Do not consider your story unexciting. Your story might just be what is needed to impact a nation. And this is where we find ourselves in the story of the book of Ezra, is that we want now to learn and to look at the rebuild, not from a research perspective, but we want to look at the rebuild from a testimonial perspective. So you see, Ezra was like Joseph because he walked around in the halls of imperial power. He, he sat among the kings. He sat among the governors. And you get this idea clearly in chapter 7 and verse number 14. And I'm reading this from the Message Bible. You are being sent by the king and his seven advisors to carry out to carry out an investigation of Judah and Jerusalem in relation to the teaching of your God that you are carrying with you. You see, the Persians devised a system to govern. That is, they were going to understand, they were going to understand all of the peoples that they were ruling. And one of the best ways to do that is that they brought together experts from the different people groups to give them an understanding of how things operate within that society. And Ezra was one of the ones who was chosen to serve on this special commission that was given the Persians inside information on the people that they have conquered. And that is why in verse number seven, in chapter number seven of verse, verse 14, clearly it says, you are being sent by the king and his advisors to investigate, to to see if your people are living by the way that they say they live by. Because you see, when the Jews left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, they were going with the idea that we are going to live out the teachings of our God. We're going to function by the Torah. Now the king is saying, Ezra, I want you to go on my behalf to see if your people are living by what they say they're living by. It's an amazing thing. When somebody who is not a believer, when somebody who doesn't believe in God wants to know if you believe, if you live by what you believe, and it could be that some of us are being looked at, some of us are being investigated to see if we're living by what we say we live by. I don't know if I'm, I'm speaking to somebody right now, That somebody at the office is looking at your life to see if you are truly honest. Somebody is looking at your life to see if you're truly a man of integrity. They're looking at your life to see if you do not steal more hours than are allocated to you. They're trying to see if you do your work with integrity. They're trying to see if you're a man of your word. Somebody is looking at you to see and to find out if you are who You say that you are. And in this passage, Ezra is being sent by the king to go and find out if those who have returned are living by the will and the law of God. And somebody here needs to understand that your life is a storybook, that your life is a movie that others are watching, and they are studying you scene to scene to see if you are living your life according to the word of God, to see if you're living your life according to the Bible. Yes, your life is under scrutiny. And the king wanted to know, Ezra, I need you to go back and find out if your people are living by what they say they're living by. And Ezra gladly accepted the task because he was an expert in the law. He was an expert in the Bible. He was an expert in in the instruction of the ways and the will of god and he was sent and he came back uh to jerusalem after a five month travel and he reported himself to the officials at the time and he says look i have come because darius has sent me not darius Artaxerxes has sent me to investigate if you are living the right way and he reported he showed his credentials i'm coming from the king And one of the things that Ezra did is that Ezra went into the temple to pray. He went into the temple to pray because he had such a great mission. Because you cannot investigate people's spirituality from a fleshly perspective. In order for you to see if people are truly spiritual, get get this, you need to also be spiritual. And how do you become spiritual? Spiritual. You go to a place of prayer, and you have God enter your mind and your spirit so that you can become spiritual. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Some of us are trying to be spiritual without prayer. We're trying to be spiritual without God. It cannot work. And Ezra says, you know what? I've come here to investigate on behalf of the king the the spirituality of my people. I'm not going to do that with my own eyes. I'm going to do that with God's eyes. I hope I just helped you right there, right now. So Ezra is there praying trying to have a spiritual encounter with God to do the spiritual work and he receives people that come to him. And I want you to notice what they say to him in verse number one of chapter nine. This is what they say to him. The officials approached me and said, now remember this is a memoir. So he is reporting and writing from a personal encounter, a first person perspective. He says, I was approached by the officials and they said to me, The people of Israel and the priests have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And then he lists all of these nations, about eight of them. He continues in verse number two. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness... The hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. In other words, Ezra receives a fallen report. Ezra receives a report about the fall of the people in Jerusalem. Ezra gets an inside story of their spirituality, and it's not good. And let us analyze it for a second. You see, we get to understand how this happened, how this fall happened. This is what happens. And and he's reported that they have taken some of their daughters to be wives and they have given their sons to their daughters. In other words, these people that are living in Jerusalem have entered into interracial and intercultural marriages. They have married foreigners and they have given their sons and daughters to also marry foreigners. And there's nothing wrong with interracial and intercultural and international marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm sure some of you listening to me, you are in interracial and intercultural and international inter, uh, marriages. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to notice what this situation produces. And notice what happens. And the holy race, the holy race, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. So we're seeing that there is a a bit of a problem, right? They have mixed themselves with the peoples of the lands. They have married internationally. They have married interracially. They have married interculturally but somehow by marrying, they're no longer looking like their original selves. They're no longer looking like Israelites. They're no longer looking like Jews. They're no longer looking like believers. They are looking more like unbelievers. They're not looking the same. There's been a change. (laughs) They're no longer the Israelites that they once were. They're no longer the Jews that they once were. They are no longer the same. They have been mixed. And notice what the text says. And in this faithlessness, in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So they have married, they have been mixed up, and then they have become unfaithful they have changed their marital status, they've changed their spiritual, uh, their, their relational status, but by changing it, they've also changed their dynamic with God. They no longer look like the people of God. They're no longer committed to God as they once were. They no longer pray as they once prayed. They no longer find some things uncomfortable as they found them comfortable. uncomfortable. They no longer look at certain things in a weird way as they once did. Something has happened because People, watch me now, people are like the wind. They're going to blow on us and influence in a a specific direction. People just don't come into your life and not influence you. People come into your life and they influence you either for good or for bad. It so happens right here is that these brothers instead of standing up in faith, instead of standing up for Jesus, they have fallen from Jesus. They have fallen from God. And this is an unfortunate situation. And once again, I want to let you know that it's not because of their marriages. It is not because of their relationships, specifically speaking. But notice what has happened. In verse number one, they have not separated themselves from the peoples of their lands with their abominations. They have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. What is an abomination? You know, in the category of an abomination are things like incest, rape, things that can make somebody puke, things that can make somebody throw up, things that make you say, ew, things that make you want to throw up, that's an abomination, it's disgusting, it's horrible, it's horrendous. So what has happened is that these brothers have started to make what is an abomination a passion. And I can talk about so many things, but let me let you know into one thing that they had gotten into, and that is child sacrifice. You, you, you see, uh, today we prize children, and I know somebody here is wanting to have a child, praying to God to have a child, wanting God to give you a child, and for some of you it's been years, and eventually after years God to give you a child, and a child is precious. It's, 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 a child is near and dear to your heart. But in these peoples of the lands in which the Jews had mixed with, these people believed that when you had something so damaging in your life, if you had a tragedy in your life, if you wanted God to do, if you wanted God to do something for you, you would be willing to give up a child and burn that child in the fire as a form of sacrifice. And the people that had, and 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 they had, because they had mixed themselves in this it no longer became an abomination for them. It became a passion for them. You know a person has fallen when an abomination becomes a passion. They no longer looked at child sacrifice with with, with abomination. They looked at child sacrifice with passion. It now became something that they started to do. They no longer said things like, They started to talk like this. You know, before we didn't believe in child sacrifice, but it's not so bad. (laughs) It's not so horrendous. It's not so horrible. It's all right. You know, we we were a little bit backwards, but now we can see the light in child sacrifice. And I think it's so good. And so what's happened is there there has been a movement from something that is an abomination they have now made it a passion, and somebody knows what I'm talking about right here. There's some things in your life that know that were an abomination are no longer an abomination today. They're a passion. What you didn't think, what what you thought was so bad, now because of who is in your life, is not so bad. What you thought was a terrible idea, but because somebody has come in your life, is no longer a terrible idea. Now, now I'm not talking about things like enjoying durian, you know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm not talking about enjoying broccoli when you thought it was an abomination. I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about things that you know are wrong, but because of who's come into your life, they now are right. You feel what I'm saying? The things that you knew or you know make you uncomfortable, you know make God un- uncomfortable, they have now become comfortable to you. you. You know that it's not the right thing, but because your perspective has been changed, because so-and-so has come into your life, because you're trying to maintain a certain status, because you're trying to maintain certain people, that thing has not become a passion for you. So if you know and you can see that somebody's abominations have become passions, then you know you're dealing with a person who has fallen. Now I want you to see how Ezra reacted to the fallen. In verse 3 of Ezra chapter 9, the text says, As soon as I heard this, as soon as I heard this, as soon as I heard this fallen report, I tore my garment. I tore my garment. And my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled, this reaction shows that Ezra sees himself responsible to rebuild the fallen. He says, I'm in a position to take care of this situation and I wanna present to you three principles that you need if you find yourself in a situation like Ezra that you need to rebuild the fallen. The first thing you need to be able to do is you need to face their problem. And this is exactly what Ezra does in verse number three, that as soon as he hears this, he tore his clothes and his garments, and he pulled his hair from his head, and and he sat apart. That is, he faced the problem. And notice how he faced it. He faced the problem with, F, with S3. And I'm, I'm not talking about Samsung here. He faced the problem with S, S3. Notice what he did. As soon as he heard this, speed. Then he tore his clothes and cloak and pulled hair from his head. That is seriousness. So there is speed as soon as he hears this. Then he tears his clothes, pulls his hair. That is seriousness. And then he, he, he sat appalled. That is shock s3 as soon as he heard this he immediately attended it speed and he took it seriously because it was no small matter and then watch this he was in shock he saw that this is a terrible situation he saw that this is a terrible situation and he needed to deal with it but i want you to notice that he did not face the per- person He faced their problem. In other words, he attacked their problem from the place of empathy. He did not go right away and say, hey, I need to have a conversation with you. No, he sat in the problem. He looked at the problem. It became his number one agenda at that particular moment. He wanted to understand clearly what is happening. Why have they fallen? He thought through what could be the possible reasons before he faced them. He wanted to be in a place of empathy. He did not want to approach them in a place of judgmentalism. He did not want to approach them in a place of I am better than you. Just like this picture. He decided... He could see that they are broken, they are cracked. But you know what he did? He decided to tie himself to them. He decided to connect to them. And if you want to help other people, if you want to rebuild the fallen, you need to tie yourself to them. You need to look at them like yourself. The same color as you, the same structure as you. Yes, you need to look at them like you. And consider that they are just in a position like you, but the only problem is that they have a crack in them. They are fallen, but they have not lost their humanity. They have not lost their Christianity. They just have fallen. But you need to face their problem. You need to look at their problem. You need to sink yourself in their problem. Because too many times, instead of looking at people's problems, what we do is we start to talk about them. We call up other people and have conversations about them. Hey, listen, do you know what they did? Oh my goodness, it's so terrible. It's so bad. And instead of facing their problem, we attack the person. We scrutinize the person, forgetting that they're just as human like you and me. They need help just like you and me. They need the grace of God just like you and me. And that if the tables are turned, you would want them to treat you with grace. You would want them to treat you with mercy. And so facing their problem needs to be the first thing that you do before you can rebuild the fallen. But once you have faced their problem, you now need to face God in prayer. You need to face God in prayer. I I I came across a meme that my cousin shared on her WhatsApp status, and I really liked it. And so I I wrote her back. I said, cousin, I really like what you texted, and I want to keep this. And this is what the meme said. It says, after gossiping about me, please pray for me. I want to be perfect like you. And isn't that so true? Isn't that so true? It is a lot harder to pray. It is a lot harder to gossip about somebody that you're praying for. It is a lot harder to gossip about somebody's infidelity if you are praying for their infidelity. It is a lot harder to gossip about somebody's somebody's somebody else's somebody else's, somebody else's sin if you're praying for their sin. Oh Lord, get the words out of my mouth. It's a lot harder to gossip about somebody's failure in class if you are praying. For their studies. You hear what I'm saying? So facing God in prayer is that you not take their problem that you are faced and now you bring it to prayer and you say, you know what, Lord, my friend has fallen into this problem and I want to pray for this problem and ask you to help them to give them victory over their situation. And this is precisely what Ezra does. But what I tell you about what Ezra does And this is just something I want to drop into your spirit to help people, to help people don't remain at the problem level. Learn to climb into the prayer level. Amen, somebody. If you want to help somebody, do not remain at the problem level. You need to elevate and climb into the prayer level. That is get on your knees and talk to God about their particular situation. Pray for them. Lift them up in prayer. Help them to know that God can do something for them. Talk to God on their behalf and pray that God will intervene and interject in their life. Can I preach it for a moment? Because too many times we don't pray. We stay at the problem level. And when we do that, we do not help God to help them. But when we allow our lives to be a roadway that our prayers can travel through, for somebody else, so that that person can climb up to God, then we are in a position to help them. You are not in a position to help them if you're not praying for them. You're not in a position to give them advice if you're not praying for them. Stop this problem-focused mindset and go to a prayer-focused mindset and pray for people. Lift them up in the name of Jesus. And I'm glad that God has been able to use other people in my life to pray on my behalf. My mother prayed for me, and that is why I became converted. Pray for somebody. Lift them up in prayer. Don't just talk about their problem. And I want you to see how Ezra climbed into the prayer level. In verse number five, And at evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now notice the prayer. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt, has mounted up to the heavens. And from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is this day. But now, mm, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us in a remnant, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our, our slavery. Notice what Ezra does. He does not run away from their shame. He does not run away from their struggle. Ezra identifies Himself, because we tend to disidentify with others. We run from their sin. We run from their mistakes. We run from their pregnancies. We run from their alcoholic uh, habits. We run from their cheating. We run from the fact that they have fallen into debt. We run away from their mess. But Ezra does not run away from their mess. Ezra sits in their mess. Ezra identifies with their mess. He doesn't say, my God. He says, our God, our shame, our sin, our guilt. He moves from I to we. He moves from I to we. And when you move from I to we, when you make that mental shift, you give yourself a better chance to help somebody. And somebody today needs to make a mental shift from I am better to we are struggling. From he is so bad to A, we can both be bad. Are you understand what I'm saying? You need to make that mental shift from your betterness to the situation that your wife is in. Yes, she has pride, but you need to move towards her pride. Yes, I know in her pride, she doesn't want to listen to you. In her pride, she wants to disagree with you. In her pride, she wants to make her own moves. But you need to move to there. You need to move towards their situation. You need to move towards their sin. Because when you make that mental shift, you're in a better position to help them. And this does not mean that you condone them. This does not mean that you agree with them. But this simply means that you understand their humanity. And you want to approach them from a place of humanity. You understand their struggle. And you want to approach them from a place of struggle. You understand their fall. And you want to approach them from a place of their fall. Isn't that what Jesus did? That he moved from I to we, he put on the garb of humanity so that we can put on the garb of divinity, he threw off his goodness so that we can embrace his goodness. He stood where we were, he stood where we 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 struggled, he stood in our sin, in our shame, and God wants us to follow the same platform, and that is how Jesus is able to build up, to build us up, because we understood he was stricken in all points, he was he was destroyed, he was he was ashamed. But yet, he did that for us, and therefore, we can relate to Jesus because he stood on our level. And what I'm saying is, learn to be on people's level, learn to see their situation in their situation from their eyes in their struggle. Do not feel and think that you are better than them if you want to help them. So, you see, facing their problem and facing God in prayer lays a spiritual foundation if you're going to help to rebuild the fallen. But that foundation needs practical skill. You need something tangible in terms of a skill set in order for you to help the fallen. Now, in order to give this sermon a little bit of integrity and continuity, let me put the point in this way. You need to face the fallen with skill. So you face them, you face their problem, then you face God in prayer, but then you need to face their problem with skill. And I want you to notice what happens in the text. And I want you to notice Ezra's skill set. And while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and cast himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered together out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Can I just talk about that for a moment? You see, Ezra is praying. He's facing God in prayer over these people. He's made the mental shift from I to we, and he's praying. But notice that as soon as he's praying, the crowd gathers to him. (laughs) Which tells me that you need a spiritual foundation if you're going to rebuild the fallen. And prayer is that powerful, that if you're praying for somebody, if you're praying for their sin, if you're praying for their shame, if you're praying for their struggle, they will know and they will feel it and it will make a difference at some point, somehow. And it may just so happen that those people that you've been praying for will approach you and come to you. And this is what we see happening in the situation right here. Do not underestimate facing God in prayer. Do not underestimate facing their problem alone in a solitary place. And I just wanna make that point that your prayers will make a difference Do not stop praying. But I want you to notice what these people that gather to Ezra say to Ezra. Notice what they say. And Shekaniah, the son of Jehiel, and of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. Addressed Ezra. Notice what they address him. We have broken faith. Rusak. We have broken our faith with our God see, they're also identifying with Ezra, our God. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the lands. Mm. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. I, I, I want somebody to hear this right here. That even though you may be fallen, but there is still hope for you. And I love these brothers that they can recognize that yes, we're broken faith. We're in sin, we're in shame, we're in struggle. But even in spite of this, there is hope for us. And I want somebody here to know that there is hope for you in Jesus. You have not fallen so far back that God's hand cannot reach out for you. You're not, you're not struggling so hard that God cannot help you out of the struggle and to help you to thrive. You're not in such a bad situation that God is incapable and unable to help you. I want you to understand that God is able to help you today. There is still hope for you today because as long as there is life, there is hope for you. Do not feel that the Lord had, the Lord's hand is too shortened that it cannot save. Do not feel that the Red Sea is so compacted, they cannot be parted. Do not feel that you're sinking so deep that Jesus cannot raise you up and you can walk on water. Do not use, do not think that your door is so bolted that Jesus cannot knock and you open it and him come in. Do not think that he cannot recreate in you a new creature. Do not think that he cannot make you and give you a new heart. Do not think that you're so desperately wicked that he cannot know what to do for you and do with you. Do not think that you're so far bent. You're so uh, helpless. Unhealthy. That Jesus cannot make you healthy again. There is hope for you today. And Jesus can do something for you today because as long as there is life, there is hope. As long as there is life, there is hope. And these brothers can recognize that there is hope for us. But I want you to understand that all of this happened because of the skill set of Ezra. You see, Ezra employed, employed the skill of prayer. And through his prayer, he was able to impact these brothers and sisters. You see, you need to have the right skills if you're gonna help the people to rebuild. Ezra had the right skill because he was a man of prayer. He was a man who connected to God And because of that prayer life, he was able to impact the fallen. Notice, they came to him because of his prayer. And I would like to to suggest to you that you need to own the right skills to address the problems of people or lead them to the place that resolves them. Now, you might say, Pastor, is prayer a skill? I'd like to suggest to you that if you practice your prayer regularly, you can become good at praying. Because some of us here struggle with praying. We don't think we are good at it. But I want you to understand that then you can practice it, you are can become good at it, and, and develop it as part of your spiritual skill set. But that's not exactly all that Ezra possessed. Because when the people come to Ezra, they tell him in verse 3 of chapter 10, Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord. Notice what they say. We want to make a covenant with God, but according to your counsel. We want to follow your lead. Why? And those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let be done according to the law. Remember, I told you that Ezra was sent to check if the people were living according to the law of God because Ezra was an expert in the law. In other words, he could expound and he could explain the word of God. So the people come to Ezra, Ezra, we can see your skill set. You know the things of God. You understand what to do. We want you to help us because we don't have the skills that you have. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? And so because Ezra possessed the skills, he was able to help them at that particular moment. In fact, chapter 7, verse number 10 says it like this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And then to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra had developed a skill set. He had a skill. He had expertise. He had know-how. And therefore, when the, the fallen came to him, he was able to rebuild them because he knew the right prescription for their malady. He knew the right solution for their problem because he had the skill. And how did he develop the skill? Ezra studied He trained, he put in the hours, he put in the time into his craft, into his trade. And he did not only put in the time, but he made sure that he was doing it. He was living by it. He was being inspired by it. So he wasn't preaching what he wasn't living. He wasn't teaching what he wasn't living. He wasn't saying, hey, do what I say, but not what I do. No, no, no. He was saying, hey, do what I say because I do what I say follow what I what I do because I do it. And therefore, because he had that skill set, because he practiced it, because he was good at it, therefore he was able to help the fallen. He was able to navigate and direct them so that they could also be at the right place with God and stand in faith and fix their broken faith. You are not going to be able to help and rebuild the fallen if you don't have the right skill set. You need skills. And how do you develop skills? Well, you need a passion. You need a desire. You need a hunger. You need a thirst. You see, there are many fallen people in this world. There are those who are fallen into depression. You can be the psychologist they need to help them. And rebuild their lives. But that might require you going to school and training and developing your skills. You see, some of us have skills. We have passions rather. And we have a drive for these things. But we don't put in the time and the hours necessary in order to make it happen. But today is time to start making it happen. Put in the time. Put in the time, put in the hours. Don't only let passion be passion, but let passion be backed up by skill. So when people come to you, you know what to tell them. You know how to direct them. You know how to guide them. And in that way, you can rebuild the fallen. God has called you and I to rebuild the fallen. And if we're going to do it, we need, number one, to face their problem. Number two, we need to face God in prayer. But last but not the least, we need to face them with skill. And if we can do these three things, we're going to be able to rebuild the fallen. Who do you need to rebuild today in your life? Who has fallen that you need to rebuild them? I'm challenging you today to start facing their problem. At least start right there. Face their problem, get in it, understand it, know it inside and out, then start to face God in prayer about their problem. And if you have the skill, please help them and rebuild them. If you don't know, lead them to the place that they're supposed to be rebuilt. You see, in this series, I've been telling you about the rebuild, and I focus on a structure the temple, the altar. Laying a second foundation. I've been focusing on a structure. But if you've noticed, from last week to this week, I've been focusing on people. Those who engage in rebuilding, they need to focus and and, and push through in, in spite of adversity. But now you need to focus your efforts on people because the greatest resource that we have are people. And imagine if we can change people's lives, what are we going to be able to do? We can transform this world if we focus on rebuilding the fallen. So whoever you are, bow your heads with me as we pray. Father God, teach us how to rebuild the fallen. We truly need you to do something powerful and magnificent. Help us, Lord, to be able to apply what we have heard and learned today. Help us to be able to rebuild the fallen. Help us, Lord, to face their problem. Help us, Lord, to face you in prayer with their problem and help us Lord to face them with the right skills. Please Lord, teach us your will, teach us your purpose. This I humbly ask and I pray in Jesus mighty name, amen. You know, there is nothing moving as the word of the Lord. I hope that that word moved your heart and that you are inspired and impacted to live a better life. Perhaps you would like to go a little bit deeper in what you have heard. Perhaps you would like for us to minister to your needs in a specific manner. Please contact us on the number on the screen, or you can get in touch with us on our social media. And we are more than happy to be a blessing to you. And if at all, the Lord has inspired your heart to partner with us. We are pleading and praying that you would invest your resources, your time, your talents and your treasure into this ministry and let us know how we can facilitate how you can be a partner with us once again may god bless you and strengthen you and i'm gonna see you next week take care